We have turned the corner in the book of Genesis. We are through the life of Abraham and now focusing primarily on the life of Jacob, his grandson. And as I mentioned a few weeks ago, the book of Genesis has been compared to, or any book of the Bible can be looked at as a pearl necklace. Each pearl uniquely its own truth that God wants to show us, but yet connected to one another and um, the way that they interweave tells a story, and throughout the story of Abraham, we looked primarily at the journey of faith, what it means to walk by faith, and now that we're looking at the story of Jacob, the focus of the author is on God's blessing. How do you get God's blessing? What do you do? What do you not do? The right ways, the wrong ways, what is God's blessing? Um, All these questions are going to be answered as Jacob, a man driven to get blessing, is going to sort of fumble his way through figuring this out. Um, As we begin the story, we have um, kind of a side story about the life of Isaac this week that we're going to look at. And these two stories, the role they play in Jacob's story is they give us a preview of what Jacob's going to go through. And so we're going to see a brief picture in the life of Isaac And what it's going to show us is how not to go about getting blessing and the right way to go about getting blessing. What Isaac learns in this one chapter, these two stories, is going to take Jacob about eight weeks of us going through his life to figure out. Um, But we're going to get a quick overview of kind of the trajectory that we're heading on. As we start in chapter 26, I want to place this story chronologically um, in what we've gone through Um, so far. uh, Last week, we talked about the birth of the twins, Jacob and Esau. Um, And the week before that, we talked about the death of Abraham. And as we read through the Bible, sometimes the authors move chronologically to tell the story as it happened. And sometimes they'll do a flashback or they'll look back at at a different time not to, in order to communicate a specific message about what's happening in the story that they're trying to tell. So the story today is going to be about Isaac, and at this point in his life, he's married, so he is at least 40 years old. But he is going to talk in such a way that indicates that the twins aren't born yet. So there's a 20-year gap between then, between when he gets married and between when the twins are born, and that's when the story takes place. Um, We'll also see his wealth grow, which shows us that Abraham hasn't died yet. Because when Abraham dies, he passes everything that he owns on to Jacob. And um, in this story, Jacob doesn't seem to have much at the beginning, but he he builds wealth through God's blessing. So this story is a little bit of a flashback before Jacob and Esau are born and before Abraham has died. Um, Somewhere in that 20 years after Isaac and Rebekah are married and when they first have children. Um, So we're going to start, and we're just going to take this a little chunk at a time and work our way slowly through this passage and see what it has to say to us. So we'll start in 26 verse 1 and read through verse 5. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens, and I will give your offspring all these lands. 
and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So as we start out on this first story, it's going to run from verse 1 through 16. And the setting is there is a famine in the land. Isaac's story is starting out very similar to Abraham's. When Abraham gets to the promised land, the first thing that happens is there's a famine in the land. And Abraham's immediate response is, I'm going to leave this barren land that there's a famine and go to Egypt where there's a river and there is sustenance. And I know that I can live. That seems to be Isaac's plan as well as he heads south down towards Gerar. But God appears to him and gives him a command about where to go. Just as at the beginning of Abraham's story, God appears to him and says, go to the land that I will show you. God shows up to Isaac and says, do not leave this land this land that I am showing to you that will be to your descendants. And at this point, it's going to take Isaac trusting in God in order to stay in this land. So as God then appears to him and gives him commands, there's three specific instructions. He tells him, don't go to Egypt, dwell in the land, and sojourn in the land. Every time this word dwell in the land comes up or to dwell in a place, it's followed by a story of a patriarch making a foolish decision. We will get to that story in a little bit. But before the story, God makes a few promises. He promises that he will be with Isaac and that he will bless Isaac. In the context of the book of Genesis, God's blessing has always thus far looked like multiplication, um, fruitfulness. Um, if you recall in Genesis 1, God, told, or God blessed the birds and the fish and told them to be fruitful and to multiply. And he blessed mankind and told them to be fruitful and multiply. In Genesis 9, he talks to Noah and blesses him and says, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. So every time that God shows up to bless somebody, he shows up to Abraham, blesses him, and says, I will make you a multitude into many nations. And now God's blessing is shown to be the same to Isaac. It is a blessing of multiplication. This blessing also contains within it the same promise that he gave to Abraham. The promise for land, specifically the land of Canaan. And the promise is not just that Isaac will obtain this land, but that his descendants will obtain the land. And that his offspring, just like Abraham's, will be like the stars And just like Abraham, God will use his offspring to bless all the nations of the earth. God is extending the promises that he made to Abraham now to Isaac, his son. Now it's up to Isaac how he's going to respond. We read in verse 6. So Isaac settled in Gerar, and when the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister again. For he feared to say, my wife thinking, lest the men of this place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. So once again, we have this fantastic lie that Abraham and now Isaac like to tell about their wives. Um, Ironically, Isaac tells the exact same lie to the exact same person in the exact same place as Abraham. And I'm not sure how he thought he would get away with this because Abimelech knows Abraham, knows his family, and we don't know about any sisters that Isaac has. There's nothing mentioned of sisters. Now, they aren't always mentioned, 
But there doesn't seem to be a lot of um, offspring coming from Abraham, and if Abimelech knew him, he might have already picked up on the fact that Isaac doesn't have any sisters. Um, Isaac is afraid. So Isaac responds in fear and lying. He lies about his wife in the exact same way that his father lied. Our fears, our natural inclinations, sometimes get passed on to those around us without us even realizing it. Um, You might notice this if you see your children respond to things the exact same way that you would respond to something, and you say, oh no, that reminds me of how I respond, and that's not good. That's what's happening with Abraham here. His son is afraid of the exact same thing. He's afraid that the beauty of his wife will cost him his life. And even though God has promised him offspring, he doesn't trust God to provide him, to keep him alive in order to have the offspring. Abraham's fears and Abraham's sin have now become Isaac's sin and Isaac's fear. And the way the author tells the story, the way that it happened in the Bible, is that it happens in the exact same city in Gerar to the exact same man, Abimelech, The exact same lie. Only this time, Abraham's lie was half true. This lie has no truth. She's his cousin, not his sister. And more importantly, his wife. Um, Isaac's lie demonstrates that he doesn't yet trust God. And oftentimes, when we don't fully trust God, we hedge our bets. We will um, either lie or go outside the will of God in order to protect ourselves in case God doesn't come through. We have our backup plan, our safety net, and that's what Isaac's doing. But his sin, as sin often does, finds him out. In verse 8, it says, When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this that you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. The first thing to notice is it says, After he had been living there for a long time, He's been carrying out this lie for a long time, somehow managing to keep the ruse up until one day Abimelech looks out his window and sees the two of them laughing. Um, Laughing together isn't always a clear indication that, you know, you're married. Um, But what is actually happening here is this word for laughter, it's a little bit of a play on Isaac's name. If you remember, his name means laughter, but it also is a little bit of a euphemism that can connotate a little bit something deeper. So there was clearly an intimate interaction between these two that Abimelech saw, and it was clear enough that he didn't question it. He knew as soon as he saw it, that's not your sister. That's your wife. Now, if you remember Abimelech, he's been told this lie before. Last time he was told this lie by Abraham, he actually took Sarah into his harem and was going to marry her. And so God showed up to him in a vision and said, if you touch that woman, you will die. So Abimelech is understandably a little bit afraid of committing adultery, especially with this family. 
And when he sees this, he's outraged. Because this lie, this same lie that he's been told before, could get him into significant trouble with God and even cost him his life. And so God uses Abimelech to rebuke Isaac, to correct him. After a long time of Isaac telling this lie, God brings in the pagan, uncircumcised unbeliever to let him know about his sin and to correct him. The truth is your sin will find you out. Sometimes it might be somebody looking through a window that sees you when you think no one else is watching. But no matter how long, and in this case, the author indicates it was a long time that Isaac had been continuing in this lie, your sin will always find you out. And when it does, it is not a bad thing. It is a good thing. God actually uses Abimelech to bring Isaac back into obedience, to correct his distrust. And God can bring people into your life too. The question is, how will you respond? How will you respond when Abimelech comes to you and says, I see this sin in your life? Will you go into denial? Will you brush it off as if it's something insignificant? Or will you respond in repentance and humility? Isaac didn't have much of a choice here. It was pretty clear at this point that his sin had been found out, his lie had been found out. There was no way for him to go back on this now. And so this forces Isaac, God uses Abimelech to force Isaac to trust him. He pushes him into it so that he has no choice but to trust God. Because at this point, everybody knows this is his wife, and if they want her instead of him, they can kill him and move on. Isaac has no choice but to trust God at this point. Now what happens after all of this? Isaac did not trust God in the midst of the famine. He stays where he's supposed to, but he lies in order to protect himself. And God brings a man to rebuke him. And so in verse 12, Isaac sowed in that land and reaped the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servant had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. Notice as it says that that same year he reaped and sowed a hundredfold. When Isaac brings his life into obedience and stops lying and being afraid, God's blessing comes. It might not seem fair. Here's this man Isaac and he does everything wrong, but God has promised him that he's going to bless him. And so God sends a man to correct Isaac back onto the right path so that God can bless him. Now, like we've mentioned, the blessing of God in the Old Testament is often tied, specifically in Genesis, to multiplication. But what does God's blessing look like for us? Um, I want to define, as we go through these next weeks of looking at blessing, God's blessing is anything that comes from his hand to us. Everything that we receive from God is his blessing. Now, this is a little bit confusing, especially if you ever go on Twitter and look up hashtag blessed. 
um, because there's all sorts of things that our world considers blessing. In fact, the world would define blessing as anything good that is deemed good by an individual. So for you, a blessing is whatever you think is good that helps you, that makes you feel satisfied in life. But when we're talking about God's blessing, we're talking about what God has deemed as good. So we have the separation of definitions. God's blessing is what God has deemed to give to us as his ultimate good. And the world's definition of blessing is basically what we want. Um, That's the short way of stating it. And this can get us into a little bit of trouble when we hold on to the world's definition of blessing and begin reading that back into scripture. So when we look and say, oh, God will bless us if we are in line with him, and our view is the world's definition of blessing, then what we're saying is, if we live in obedience, then God will give us whatever we want. That's dangerous. Um, It gets us into prosperity theology and prosperity gospel. That says God is merely here to serve us and to give us what we want and to make my life happy and enjoyable. But the problem is sometimes what we want is not good for us. And often what we want is not God's best for us. And so when we spend our lives thinking that if we live obedient to God, then we're going to get the blessing that we desire, oftentimes we're disappointed because we don't get what we want. Instead, God gives us something else, which in the end we realize is what's best for us. But it creates sometimes a tension between us and God when we don't get what we want, even though we think we're living in obedience and we should be getting what we want. To paint a picture, it's like the child at a checkout lane whose parent has filled the shopping cart with all sorts of wonderful, healthy meals and food to help this child grow. And the child sits and cries and cries because they can't have the candy bar on the shelf that the grocery store puts there to invoke tantrums and make parents buy candy. Um, Oftentimes we are like that child sitting there looking at the thing that we want, not recognizing all the good that God has given us. Similarly, if you ever get the chance to look up reasons why my kid is, or reasons why my child is crying, you will see all these pictures of kids having a tantrum because their parents won't let them drink bleach or jump into the 400-degree oven or whatever else the child thinks they want at that time. And oftentimes, our faith can be childish like that. We desire so much the things of the world, the things that we think will make us happy, that when we don't get them, we can throw spiritual tantrums. But God has promised us blessing, and his blessing is what is his good for us. And so sometimes we want things like wealth, success, health, all things that are good. But sometimes God withholds those things from us in order to provide us with a depth of faith and trust that wouldn't come if we had what we wanted when we wanted it. That is God's true blessing. God's true blessing is conforming us to the image of his son, is making us more and more Christ-like. And oftentimes that requires difficult situations and not always getting what we want. God's blessing comes to Isaac only after he trusts in God. God promised that he would trust Isaac, and so he gets Isaac in line with him so that he can bless him. The more that we walk with God, 
the more of God's blessing we will get. Now, I want to be clear, because that can be a dangerous statement when we think about blessing as the world's blessing. When we think of, oh, the more I obey God, the more of his blessing, the more money, the more health, the more happiness I will have in life. That's not what I'm talking about. The closer we walk with God, the more of God's blessing we get, God's blessing being his good that he has designed for us to give to us. In fact, in James 4.8, he says, draw near to God and draw, God will draw near to you. As we draw near to God, the closer we are to him, the more we receive of him, which is his blessing, which is his good. There is a correlation. When we walk in disobedience to God, we miss out on his blessing, the things that he has for us. And sometimes, right away he corrects us. Sometimes, his grace, he allows us to go days, weeks, months, years in our folly until he will correct us. But the sooner we turn, the sooner we repent, the sooner we line ourselves up with God, the more of his blessing that we can receive, the more of God we can receive in our life, the more of his grace, the more of his love, the more of his direction and guidance in order to mold us and shape us. That's God's promise. If God's promise to Isaac was, Behold, I will make you a multitude of nations, God's promise to us in Romans 8 is that those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of God. God has promised that he is going to make you into the image of Christ by whatever means possible. And so sometimes he will send an Abimelech along to correct you, to bring you back, to bring you his blessing. So this is the first story of Isaac. Now Isaac's second story is like the other side of the coin. We get to see Isaac as he walks in trust, believing in God. So the setting starting in verse 17, there's an issue of some wealth stealing that is going on. If you'd read with me in verse 17 through 22. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines, Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Asek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that one also, and he called its name Sitna. And then he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Isaac's life is a little bit difficult. Everywhere that he goes and he digs, as soon as he finds water, it gets taken away from him. Sometimes we have seasons of life like that where it just seems like everything that you do is, is fruitless. You like get a bonus at work and then your car breaks down and you have to spend all the money right away to get it fixed. And it seems like every step you take, it's just, oh no, I, you can't, every time you take a step ahead, you get two steps back. And that's what's happening with Isaac. Everywhere that he goes, his wells are stolen from him. But everywhere that he goes, he finds water. The Hebrew word for find there is the exact same word back in verse 12 of reap. When God blesses Isaac and he sows and reaps, here he is, 
in a sense, sowing through digging and reaping the water. He's finding water. Evidence that everywhere that he goes, God's blessing is with him. And just to be clear, Isaac is not digging for water in Ohio in 2019, where water is everywhere. He is digging in the Middle East, in a land where striking water is rare. And every time he digs, he finds water. God's blessing is with him. When they send Isaac away, they tell him to go away because he's a mighty man. He's, um, Abimelech says, go away for you are mightier than we. Yet somehow these herdsmen, not soldiers, herdsmen, are stealing wells. Isaac has the ability, he has the men, he has the power to be able to take back the wells. To retaliate. But he doesn't. Instead, his response is trust. He trusts that God will provide for him. So rather than retaliating and taking back by force what God has promised to him, he trusts God to provide, and so he moves and digs and moves and digs and moves and digs, continually trusting God each step of the way. And each time he moves and digs in trust, he is blessed and finds water. And as he moves and he digs, and he moves and he digs again and again. God is with him each step of the way, continuing to bless him. In verse 23, it says, From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. And so he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. As he moves and digs, moves and digs, God shows up and again promises promises to bless him and promises to be with him. And so Isaac worships because he recognizes the success that he is having is from God's hand. It is God's blessing. Now Isaac isn't the only one that recognizes this. Abimelech comes back onto the scene in verse 26. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with the husband, his advisor, and Fickle, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me, and you have sent me away from you? And they said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So he said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have not done to you nothing but good, and have set you away in peace." You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and they drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths. So Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed in peace. So Abimelech's response is respect. As he sees Isaac and the way that he has lived his life, the blessing that God has brought on him, this brings an amount of respect for Abimelech, mostly because he's concerned about his own safety and welfare now that Isaac's become this mighty man. And Abimelech specifically recognizes that it is the Lord that is blessing Isaac. He recognizes God's work. So through Isaac's trust, he speaks volumes of God and his goodness to the unbelievers around him. And the end result then, after this oath is made, That same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug, and they said to him, We have found water. And they called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of that city is Beersheba to this day.
and so it results in blessing. So these two stories follow a similar pattern. You see there's a setting, both of them negative things going on in the life of Isaac. Isaac responds two different ways, and God uses Abimelech to highlight Isaac's response. When Isaac fears, Abimelech comes as a rebuke from God. When Isaac trusts, Abimelech comes as an affirmation from God. Of an affirmation when Abimelech says, you are now the blessed of the Lord. And both of them result in blessing. But in the second story, Isaac receives the blessing of God throughout because he is walking with God throughout. So where does that leave us today? Um, as we look at this story, I want to call us together especially in light of the next several chapters that we're going to study about the blessing of God, that we recognize the difference between God's blessing and false blessing or the world's definition of blessing. Because each chapter as we go, the temptation will be to think about God's blessing as whatever we want and whatever is good for us. So I want to encourage you in your own life to recognize the difference between God's blessing and what we want. Um, and to ask God, to plead with God for his blessing, not just what we want. And then, we encourage you to trust God. Like Isaac in the second story. This amazes me, because my temperament is so different than Isaac. If somebody takes the well that I dug, I'm like, well, I can go to court. There's multiple ways for me to like, rightfully get this back, because it belongs to me. And so I'm going to take care of it. But God calls us to trust him. Sometimes trust does look like going through the proper courses to regain what's been taken from you. But sometimes, as Jesus says, if a soldier asks you to go a mile, go two miles. When you are wronged, when someone hits you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. Rather than always having to have vengeance, trust God that he will take care Trust God that he will provide what you need and that he will bring about his end goal, that he will eventually turn us all into the image of his son. It'll happen as a slow process here on earth and someday in heaven we will fully realize as we are conformed perfectly into the image of his son. So let me challenge you in your life to recognize the difference between what we desire as our own blessing and what God has called or what God has called his blessing that he is going to give to us. The New Testament says that every good and perfect gift comes from above and comes down from the Father of lights. Every good thing comes from God. Sometimes we might be like that child, crying, wanting what we think is good, but remember that God has so much better in store for us.